we're glad to be sharing the ministry of Redemption Church with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. Everybody in the room, welcome. My name is Chris Fluitt, and I'm glad to be sharing the Word of God with you. We have an anonymous text line, and you can text us anytime, all the time, not just when we're doing this series. Anytime, and I promise you, it is always anonymous. Send us your questions, 214-856-0550. It is really important to us to have a church where it is safe to not know everything, where it is safe to have questions, even concerns. It is okay to even have doubts here. Nobody's going to judge you for doubting. Nobody's going to judge you if you look at the word uh, of a certain scripture and go, I don't know if I even believe that. Oh, that is perfectly fine. We're glad you are here. We'll wrestle through the word together. An anonymous text line is a great place for you to ask any of those questions. I always say I can tell when my church is reading their Bible because I get questions. So let's be a church that asks questions and reads our Bible and is okay with questions, doesn't judge one another if we have questions. Are you ready to jump into this? Tech team, are you ready back there? Well, I did my best to stall for you guys. All right. Are Catholic people saved? We're just jumping right into it. There we go. That's our first question. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. Are Catholic people saved? Will they be in heaven or any other denomination? What about homosexual churches? So that's our first question. It's a doozy. Are you ready? All right. Now, uh, Rick, did you know that you're answering this question this week? Did you know? No, no. Wouldn't I... Isn't that fun? So everybody, I want to take you to a verse. If you can pull this verse up on your phone or your Bible, it's in Luke chapter 18. Hey, we're, we're talking right now. Y'all, you can ask those questions anytime, but right now we're talking. We're going to Luke 18 and 26 and verse 27. After Jesus spoke to the very religious, rich young ruler, he had this encounter with his disciples. Luke 18 and 26, they asked this question. Those who heard him asked, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. For me personally, it won't be amazing that a Catholic gets saved. It won't be amazing that a Baptist gets saved. It won't be amazing for a Presbyterian saved or even a homosexual to be saved. You listen to me. For me. It will be amazing that I am saved. And I mean that 100%. I'm not putting on airs. I'm not avoiding a question. I'm telling you, it will be amazing. It will be the most amazing thing that Chris Fluitt gets saved. You know why? Here it is. Because I know Chris Fluitt better than I know any of you people. I know Chris Fluitt better than I know any of you people. In fact, I've been trying to get away from Chris Fluitt for many years. And wherever I go, there I am. And I want to tell you, I know better than anyone else that I feel qualified to tell you Chris Fluitt does not deserve salvation. 100% doesn't deserve it at all. I know the thoughts that have gone through my mind. I I know the words that have come out of my mouth. I have known the things that I have done that that I have totally kept secret from all of you. And I, I lay bare before you that it will be amazing to see Chris Fluitt walk on streets of gold. I say that 100% without any trepidation. But with God, the impossible things 
become possible. I would tell you it's pretty much impossible for Chris Fluitt to be saved, but with God. You see where we're headed with this? I'm going to tell you something uh, about Catholics. I know some Catholics that are absolutely wonderful people. I know some spirit-filled, charismatic Catholics that I have a great amount of trust in their prayer life and in their love of Christ. I've, I've been in some Catholic youth group worship services. Did y'all know that? No, I've played in some. And they put us, some of us, to shame. Like we ought to do a little bit better. Next time we're, next time we're like judging some people, that is so weird to like just brush, wide brush, judge everybody. I loved their worship all these years later. I've never forgotten those kids just crying out to the Lord. So there are many doctrinal differences, sure, between my Catholic friends and me. Absolutely. Newsflash, there's probably doctrinal differences between us in this room. But it would be foolish for me to stand or for you to stand or for anyone to stand in the judgment seat of Christ and declare someone saved or unsaved. Do you agree with that? There is a judgment seat. There's one judgment seat. And who gets to sit on it but God? Right? It would be foolish for either of us to, to, to stand in that judgment place. In fact, woe to the person that tries to stand in that place. Because with the measure that you judge, you shall be judged. Do you get that? All right. So if you're really going to judge people, you are setting yourself up for a rough time in the future. That's why we need to be people of mercy. We need to be people of grace. We need to be people of love. Absolutely. I'll go to a great verse. This is a great verse, a verse I come to a lot. This is a great one, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. If you have a Bible, this is one you ought to just mark and say, Pastor Chris needs this one. This is a good one. That verse, it says, accept the one whose faith is weak. Can we stop for a moment? Do you ever have faith that is a little weak? All right, what does it tell us to do? Accept them. That's why a lot of churches can't stand a question and answer series like this. Because there's some questions that come up, they go, Ooh, I'm having a little difficulty with my faith in this area. Right? I want to tell you, we're supposed to be accepting of those whose faith is weak. We're not supposed to pick up stones and throw it. Doesn't that, it's not exactly what the Pharisees would have done. Your faith's weak? Oh, get the, get the stones, Margaret. We're going to go stone Marshall, his faith is a little weak today, right? With the, the next thing it says, without quarreling over disputable matters. So here's the deal. Here's the other thing it says. Accept the one whose faith is weak and don't like load up to like hit them with it. Don't load up to quarrel with them. Well, your faith's weak. Well, I'm going to straighten you out, Cleta. You come on over here. I'm just going to hit you with this Bible until you see things like I do. Has anybody ever been in a situation that's a little bit like that or about religious folks? I have been. Then y'all haven't. Y'all have been asleep because that's everywhere. I've been through that all over the place. Without quarreling. Accept people without quarreling. Can we be the church that just accepts people without quarreling? I want to. And then this last part, if, if this isn't a good enough verse already, PA, look at the last two words, three words, over disputable matters. 
This is the Apostle Paul talking. He knows way more than any of us. <laughs> He's on it. He says that there are disputable matters. There are some matters that should be settled. And on that we should all stand on who Christ is, what he did on the cross, that there is a heaven, Jesus Christ is coming, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, that's where we're standing. That's where our faith is, all right? But beyond that, there are some disputable matters. And we need to accept one another without quarreling over disputable matters. When we're talking about doctrinal differences here and there, we need to come back to this verse. We need to love people. We need to take them in our arms. We need to pray with them, pray for them, and have, have the humility to let them pray for you. I've got on, my, uh, got on my hand right here. I, you know, I've always got these little, I collect these things. One of them, my workout partner, Omar Hernandez, gave me this one. And it says, it used to have a little white spot on it. It, was like, it looked like a priest's collar. You know, like a priest's collar? And it says, pray for priests. And I saw him wearing it. I said, that's really cool. He says, do you want this? said, yes, I want this. Will you pray? I said, yes, I'll pray. Every time I see this, I'll say, Lord, help a priest near me. Help lift them up. Help them in Jesus' name. Help a Catholic priest. I don't care what kind of priest they are. Lord, help them. Help them. Help them. Help them. Love that. So there are disputable things that we can get all hooked, just turned upside down on, right? How about this one? Like what Bible to use? There are some people out there that are KGV only. I remember my dad walking up to a, to a house, knocking on it. I was with him, and he was witnessing to this lady. And they got in. She just wanted to lambast him over the, using a different uh, Bible. And she, I remember her. She said these words, Jeremy. She said, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And if you didn't laugh at that, you might not understand. There's, there's a real thing there. there that's, a, that's a translation. But we can, we can get high and mighty over these disputable things. Don't put someone down because of the Bible they use. Some people use the message Bible. Don't you dare put them down for that. In fact, I just gave someone a message Bible. And I was reading through it with them, this message Bible. Now, there are some people that would lambast this kid for having a message Bible. But I want to tell you, I gave him that Bible because I prayed, what Bible should I give him that he would read? And that's the Bible I gave him. There's all these disputable matters, all right? Listen, listen, there are some things that ought to be rock solid. But if they aren't rock solid, let's chalk them up to disputable matters and let's keep worshiping God together, all right? How we do communion, that's one of those things. We could argue all day on how to do communion. How to baptize, my gosh, people have argued that one to death. What's the correct way to worship? All those things. Who can be a deacon in the church? All these things, let's not quarrel, but let's accept one another. Can we accept somebody? Look at somebody and say, hey, I accept you. I accept you. Be real about it. I accept you. Now, what about so that, I'm just overcompassing. We love, we love Catholics. We love Catholics. How about this one, homosexual churches? Let's get, let's get real about this one. Y'all ready for this one? Scripture is clear about lifestyles we should repent of. Okay? So we can talk about homosexuality there. 
But you know what also we should talk about? If we're going to talk about lifestyles we should repent of, while we're talking about homosexual churches, we might ought to talk about hypocrite churches. We We might ought to talk about greedy churches. We might ought to talk about unforgiving churches. We might ought to talk about unloving churches. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah. Do you know where judgment begins? It begins at the house of God. That's what 1 Peter 4, 17. It begins with the very children of God. Judgment is coming. All right. But you know what? If you really ought to be making sure that you're okay. Because judgment's coming to you first. Now listen. Why do I say that? Because too often. We're offended by someone else's sin. But we're okay with ours. I know somebody's trying to say amen. They just hadn't got there yet. Too often we are offended with the sin of somebody else, but we are actually okay. We find ways to cover it up. We find ways. It's all right. You know, at least I'm not like that person. We do these things. That is not right. Judgment begins at the house of God. All right. Again, not going to stand in the judgment seat of Christ and declare someone saved or unsaved. The way to heaven It's through one person. It's Jesus. And we're going to share Jesus with everybody. And the areas that don't line up with Jesus, we're going to still accept them and love them. Can I get an amen on that? Are we going to be that church? Let's be that church. Now listen, there are sin issues. And I have found this. Listen, you can preach about against sin. And we should. We should repent of all sin. But do you know what what saves people is not preaching about their sin, but about the Savior? Look in the book of Acts. Philip doesn't show up to Samaria and say, you're a bunch of sinners. No, it says these words. He preached Christ to them. And that whole place came unglued and they all repented. If we are preaching sin without Christ, we're doing it completely wrong. Completely wrong. See, that's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is for. All of that. All right. Love you guys. Very tough question. Whoever you are that sent that in, I love you. Thank you for that tough question. Next question, just equally hard. I don't know who you are either. (laughs) Y'all saved the best for last, guys. Here we go. Exodus 21 and 22 would appear to suggest that if a mother with child is hurt and the child is lost, there would be a severe fine. But if the mother dies, it's life for life, which is where the choice points, uh, the, the choice, pro-choice argument points in the Bible uh, for their argument. Would it be fair to say that the church should show more love in tough situations than be fully committed to changing laws, to outlaw abortions, making a hard situation easier on us? What a question. Thank you for whoever you are for this very hard question. Pray for your pastor, y'all. Here we go. Here it is. First, let's look at the scripture together. Exodus 21, 22. It says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Verse 23. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Verse 24. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. All right, so that's the verse 
in question. All right. So the, the, the crux of this question at the beginning is uh, how do we apply uh, abortion on this subject? So here it goes. The word for prematurely actually means depart in the Hebrew. Remember it said she's hit in her, she's hit and she uh, gives birth prematurely. It means depart. It departs. What departs the baby? What's in within her departs. If you want to call it a bundle of cells, you want to call a living soul, whatever you want to call it, it departs, all right? The insinuation is that the strike causes labor to come early, thus it's translated premature in the NIV. Prematurely does not always mean miscarriage. It does not always equal death. Do you understand that? Was anybody born premature in here? Yeah, some people in this room were born prematurely. So one thing, it's, it, depending on how you interpret this verse, this is a crux situation. What does it mean prematurely? All right. The wording is a little ambiguous, and I can personally think of more than one way to interpret this verse. There's a few ways to interpret this verse. Verse 22 it says, but there is no serious injury. Look at that. It says there's no serious injury. What does this mean? Serious injury to who? Probably not to the person that accidentally strikes the woman. Right? But what does this apply to the woman, her baby, or perhaps both? And the scripture doesn't tell us. Right? Who does it apply to? So it's, it's open. Maybe it applies to both. Maybe that's the most honest way to look at it. Serious injury to both. So you have an abortion argument, right? No one's ever heard, run into an abortion argument before. That never, that never happens out in the world, right? It's everywhere. Gosh, they just overturned Roe v. Wade. It's everywhere. Gosh, people are everywhere talking about this. All right. And before that, we were talking about it. This is everywhere. So what are we? What, what should we, is this scripture pointing us to a pro-choice or pro-life argument? Here's what I want to tell you. Use all of scripture, all of scripture, not just cherry picking what verses you want to use to prove your point. And that's done all the time. Politicians are the worst at doing this. They are absolutely the worst at doing this. You will hear politicians use a Bible verse and then it will come out like, like the next week with awful atrocious thing they're doing. This is happening. And this is both sides of the art aisle here. I'm not, I'm not like even just thinking of one person here. This is everywhere. So when you use the scripture, use all of the scripture. All of it. And don't cherry pick to support your belief. In this one verse, there is enough ambiguity to make an argument toward a bias. That's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about bias. The pro-choice will argue that the life of the woman is worth more than the bundle of cells within her. That they'll, they'll bring up this verse to do that. That's their bias. So they'll use this verse to try to get to that bias. right? And then the pro-life will argue from their bias, towards their bias, that the, uh, that the fine that they have to pay still shows a wrongdoing of a terminated pregnancy and that the striking of the woman was accidental, whereas abortions are deliberate. Boom. So they'll argue that back and forth right there. They'll, they'll, stand, they'll both stand on the same verse and come to different outcomes towards their bias. No one's ever run into that ever, have they? Gosh, none of us have a bias, do we? 
Oh, I'm telling you, I personally have a bias about this subject right here. I have a bias about this subject. I don't mind telling you that I have a bias. I'm not going to tell you what my bias is today. If you guess, you have a 50% shot of guessing anyways. That's not, nothing to brag about. But I have a bias personally about this area. I want to tell you, be careful not to read your bias onto the Word of God. Do not read your bias into the text. Don't do that. You don't ever want to do that. There's a word for that. It's a fancy word. Here it is. Eisegesis. It's where you put your bias into the text. What you think about things. Beyond bias, this, this scripture should show us this. Beyond bias. With no bias. Here it is. That our actions carry consequence. Our actions carry consequence. And we should hold ourselves accountable even to the unattended consequences of our actions. You see that in this story? The, whoever hit the woman did not intend to hit the woman. But there is a consequence even when it's unattend, un, unintended. Do you follow me on this? Our actions carry consequences and we are responsible for them. That's in the verse and you can take that to wherever you need to in life. Okay? That's application of the word of God. If you have done something that has hurt somebody, do something about it. Make it right. If you said something and you lied about something and they lost their job over it, go make that right. If you did it on accident, if you accidentally dinged someone's car, Getting out, right? Was, oh, lucky me. No one was around, right? It was an unintended consequence. But make it right. Leave them a note. Wait for them to show up and say, I'm so sorry I did that, right? That's what this verse is really telling us about, all right? And there's, there's a lot of application for it. That's what's so great about the Word of God. The, the Word of God says one thing. It doesn't say a bunch of things in a verse. It says one thing. But then you can take the truth of that one thing and then apply it to other areas outside of your fighting fisticuffs and accidentally hit a pregnant woman. That's a pretty narrow use. But the word of God can be used in many, many ways by application. Next, okay. The question was, should the church show more love? So let's start there. Should the church show more love? What do you think my answer is to that? What do you think my answer is? We should always love. In fact, we should eliminate everything that is not done from a motivation of love. Everything that's not done from love, get it out of here. We don't need it. It's not good for us. It's not pleasing to God. And it will hurt people and it will hurt us. Y'all get me on that? All right. So what does that look like here? Well, you have love for the pregnant woman. The woman that's pregnant, love her. 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 Who she is. Love for the unborn. We believe that that's a person that will grow up to be a person absolutely with the soul that will live in eternity somewhere. Love that unborn child. Love them. Love for the woman who had an abortion. Oh, let's spend some time on that one. This person has had an abortion. They might feel uneasy about it. They might feel judged about it. They might feel ostracized about it. What, what, how should they feel? They should feel loved. 
That's how they should feel. That's, that should be our response to them. We're not here to lecture them. We're not here to shame them. We're not here to put them down. We're not here to remind them of what's in the past. We're here to love them. And then love for the woman who actually had the child. The woman that did have the child. There, is, there are women that walk up to abortion clinics. Some of them walk out without a baby anymore. And some of them walk out with that baby. Regardless of how they walk out, they should be loved by the people of Jesus Christ. We'll go a little further. Moms should not have to worry that their children will starve. Why? Because there's a Christian that loves them. Woman who had an abortion should not feel judged and ostracized. Why? Because there's a Christian that loves them. Democrats, Republicans, pro-choice and pro-life. Even when we disagree, we must love. That is not optional. Everything, there's a lot that's optional in this world. That charge of love, Jesus is very serious about it. He, how are they going to know we're his disciples? Love. How do we fill all the law and prophets? Love. If we say we love God but have no love for our brother who we do see, we are liars over and over again. We got to have love. You got to, got to, got to, got to have love. Somebody say amen on that. Mm. Then the next part, it said this. So, right, so should the church show more love? And then it, it asks, uh, should, should Christians be fully committed to changing abortion laws? So let's talk about that. Let's get that right here in the middle. Is it wrong for Christians to be politically minded? If you ask some people, they'll tell you, absolutely. No, I've run into people that tell me that. Just this year on Facebook, I've had people tell me that. Is it wrong for Christians to be politically minded? I'm going to answer that as your pastor. Here it is. You listen to me. As long as you can operate from love, you have full permission to be politically active. But if you can't be politically active and love, you need to back off that thing. And back off to whatever level you need. You listen to me. If you froth at the mouth and hold a sign, and I don't care what your sign says, if you have anger and hatred in your heart, you need to put that sign down. You need to go pray. And I'm going to go a little further. I believe every Christian should vote. Every Christian should vote. Every Christian should vote. But you listen to me. There's a worse thing than not voting. And it's having hatred in your heart. If you can't go cast your vote and then be at peace with the outcome and just say, God, I don't care who's in the Oval Office, you're on the throne. If you can't do that, maybe you don't need to be thinking about voting. There it is. I said it. Abby was appreciative of it. Thank you, Abby. Everyone else is like, what is he talking about? I'm telling you to guard your heart because everything flows out of it. Is that a scripture? Yeah, you got to guard your heart. My God, my God. There we go. Well, we're going there. We did it. All right. I would also tell you this. It does not have to be an either or. It doesn't have to be an either or. Should I be a Christian or should I be politically minded? It doesn't have to be either or. When I stand here, though, I want to tell you, as your pastor, I take this very seriously. I stand here. I stand on the word of God and not a political platform. And if you ever feel like I'm violating that, please come talk to me. I don't care how you vote. I don't want to speak to that at all. 
I want to care. I care about your heart, and I care about your eternity, and I make no apologies for that. But I don't stand here as a politician. I don't stand here on any political platform at all. I stand on the word of God. And when I give the word of God, I don't try to have a little bias in it or a little nudge at one political party and a little thumbs up at the other political party. I don't try to do that. And I hope you'd see that in me. I do my best to avoid all political bias and just deliver God's truth. I personally have been attacked by both sides of the political aisle for remaining politically silent. I have, yeah. Both, both, both sides. Red or blue, libs or cons, both of them. I've, I've been attacked by both of them. People don't really want me to address politics. They just want to shame me into agreement so that I'm on the right team. And that is all throughout politics. People care about what, what team you're on. I want, so maybe I'll do something here. Maybe I will. Y'all forgive me for a second. We'll get political for the first time ever in the history of Redemption Church. I'm going to endorse a candidate. I've got somebody you've got to vote for. We're coming up on, on a November election. Here it is. I'm going to, I'm Cleta. Hold on, everybody, because I'm about to endorse a candidate. I want you to vote for Jesus Christ. I want you to vote for him. Do not vote for him just every four years. Don't just vote for him every two years. Vote for him every day. Vote for him with every heartbeat. Vote for him with all that's within you. Blessing his holy name. Lift up who Jesus Christ is. He's the king of glory. Jesus, I love you. You're on the throne and I want to put you on the throne of my heart every day. Every day, every day, every day. Oh, come on, Christians. That's how we need to be. That's how we need to be. I want to tell you I've got a political mindset and I've got political thoughts on things like abortion and gun control and all those other things. I absolutely do. But I'm telling you, none of that really matters like the gospel of Christ matters. None of that really matters like getting your friend in church. If you're having political discussion in church with, with people, but you haven't invited them to church, I would say, I got a Problem with that. Don't do that. Invite them to church. Get them, get them saved. All right? There we go. There we go. All right. Next question. Oh, thank you for whew, that question. Thank God that's over. All right. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, it says, They which are of faith are sons of Abraham, are Christian believers, also considered sons of Jacob through the line of Jesus. So, Big deal in your Bible is lineage, right? You can't read anywhere in the Old Testament or even in the Gospels without running into a lineage. Adam has this son named Seth. And then we got all these names that come in. Enos and Enoch. And we got Methuselah in there. We got some really weird names. You open up the book of uh, Chronicles. And uh, you've got this so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you'll get stuck in those, those chapters. Sometimes a lot of people give up because it's all these names. It's like, Gosh, what's the point of that? There's a lot of point to it. No one, God's really uh, uh, keeps track of everybody. Amen. There's never been someone that God's forgotten. He remembers us all. He knows your name. It teaches us that. It also uh, shows us the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's significance to that. There is one tribe that the Messiah is going to come through. And so it was really important to know the lineage of Judah is the name of that tribe. By the way, Jesus comes from the, the tribe of Judah. 
So, but I want to I want to come back to this question. The sons of Jacob. That's mentioned in Bible. The children of Israel. Jacob's name is also Israel. He wrestles with uh, the angel and his name is changed. And so he has 12 sons and that, that equals the 12 tribes of physical Israel. That's a physical Israel. So when you, whenever you see Jacob mentioned in scripture um, outside of it being the person within the story of Jacob, sometimes a prophet will say, woe to the children of Jacob. They're going to be in trouble with God. You know, stuff like that. It's talking about that lineage of the 12 tribes, the physical Israel. Now the children of Abraham, that gets different, especially in your New Testament. The, the children of Abraham are spiritual children of the promise through faith. Galatians 3 and 7. Now let's read it. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith. Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Gentiles are not children of Abraham. But by faith they are justified by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Paul right here is telling you that the gospel is being announced all the way back in the book of Genesis through God's promise that was received by faith for Abraham. Verse 9. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it's through faith. We are not blessed through Abraham. Understand this. We're not blessed through Abraham. But through faith according to the promise that Abraham received. Verse 9 actually says we are blessed along with, alongside Abraham. In fact, the blessing that Abraham's getting, you're getting too. Why? What, what, for what reason could you have the same blessing of Abraham? Faith, everybody. That's why, faith. Verse 16 of the same chapter, Galatians 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, many, meaning many people, but and to your seed. So Paul's underlining the fact that it's a singular seed. What does that seed mean? It says, meaning one person who is Christ. The promise and the blessing comes through a single seed, and that seed is Jesus Christ. You want to activate the promises of God? You need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham's physical lineage is complex. It's really complex. And people will tell you this all the time. You know, you know it would be good to be born from Abraham because if you're born of Abraham, you're saved. People, you'll hear people say that, and they'll, they'll pick a, a verse here and there about that, kind of use that. But I want to tell you, out of, out of Abraham doesn't just come Israel. The, the Edomites come out of, out of Isaac. Got Abraham, Isaac. He has two sons. Got Jacob and Esau. <laughs> There's a wild verse about that too. I won't get into that. That's a question waiting to happen. All of the Arab nations come from who? Abraham's son, Ishmael. And so it's very serious that not everyone born of Abraham is of Abraham. Meaning the promise and the faith of Abraham. The promise is not seeds but a singular seed. The birth of Christ. And that's actually preaching the gospel in advance. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed. Does anybody belong to Christ? 
You are of Abraham's seed. You are not, you actually don't trace your lineage to Abraham. You trace your lineage to Christ. Yeah. And your heirs according to the promise. That's a great verse. Your heirs, you've got a promise coming. You've got an inheritance coming. You are heirs. And we do not belong to Abraham, but Christ. Abraham also belongs to Christ through faith, as do all the heroes of faith. You can read about that in Hebrews 11. And that all preceded the coming of Christ. So it's not now about a physical lineage. Romans 9 and 8. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So when we're talking about the children of Jacob, that's very much about the physical children of Israel. When we're talking about the children of Abraham, especially when you read in the epistles, it is pointing you to faith in Christ, the seed and the promise. Next question. My dad enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'm here all night. All right. Genesis chapter 1. Explains creation and the animals of the earth were created before man. But in Genesis 2, after Adam was created, God creates animals and brings them to Adam. Adam names all the animals. Is there a contradiction here? So let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2. There's a lot to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 focuses on the creative order of days. Day 1, day 2, all the way to day 7. And gives a broader creation story. It uses the most generic name for God. It's Elohim. Genesis 2 gives us specifics. Like the names of Adam and Eve. Not found in Genesis 1. But Genesis 2. We are told how Eve is made. From Adam's rib. Specifics. In Genesis 2. It uses a more specific. Covenantal. Compound name for God. Yahweh. Elohim. Is in chapter 2. So we have a more specific. uh, Understanding of God. In Genesis chapter 2. In the first two chapters. They they have different literary styles. Chapter 1 has a different literary style. From chapter 2. There is a lot of argument. Out there about the differences in style. Between these two chapters. But regardless of what. The experts think. You know why they're experts. They've got a piece of paper that says they're an expert. Gosh, where do they get these papers? I don't have a paper. Regardless of what the experts argue about, I would challenge you to read the first two chapters. And I think you'll agree that the two chapters feel differently. It feels like a different kind of story uh, in each one. How it delivers it feels different. We should note that neither chapter feels like a scientific journal. If you don't believe me, go read a scientific journal and then try to read the first two chapters. It does not feel that way. It does not feel like a scientific journal. Much of the criticism of the Bible is comparing the creation story account to scientific theory. And I would argue that the creation account was not to be a scientific method, but a simple ancient storytelling method. And if it was meant to be, if it was meant to be a scientific method, Then when God said, let there be light, in your Bible it wouldn't have said light. It would have said this. Do we have this picture here? Let there be light, and it would be the formula right there. It's kind of covering that. God said, 
And God said, let there be, and that's the formula for light. If you really wanted the Bible to be a scientific journal, you have to be prepared to read that and go, praise the Lord, that's wonderful. Right? Unless you're a deep scientist that really likes this kind of formula for stuff, you're, you're not going to be about this, right? In fact, how would Moses have understood this right here? Oh, yeah, one of these things with, the, with an, uh, a double fermata, a, a forte, double forte. It's a music joke. All right, so, right, if, if you wanted it to be that way, it's not. It's not a scientific journal. It's ancient storytelling. It's just basic. There's this farmer guy, and he's able to read it and get meaning out of it. And you are able to read it and get meaning out of it. That's what makes it so powerful. It's not scientific journal stuff. Now, specifically to the question, there is a little overlap and retelling of the story that takes place in these two chapters. And this includes plants, animals, and man. Genesis 1, land animals are created on the sixth day along with man. Sixth day, you got land animals, you got man. In Genesis 2, man is placed in the garden. Eve is created from Adam's rib. But before this moment, you have verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is chapter 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave the uh, names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So we, we're pretty, you're probably familiar with this part of the story. So from the text in verse 9, we don't actually see God making the animals here. We don't actually see that. That's not part of the storytelling method. Nor is Adam's creation part of the storytelling method here. But Eve's creation is part of the method here. But God brings the animals he had already created before Adam. And that's what you need to understand. The, the question was, it, it looks like God creates the animals before Adam in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he creates animals afterwards. But let's look really closely if that's what it says. The KJV wrongly translates this Hebrew from the wrong tense. It, it, it takes it from the perfect tense. And it reads like this. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. But if it was created, if it was translated perfectly correctly, it would be out of the ground the Lord God had formed. Had means it happened already. So this right here, when translated correctly, it answers all the chronological criticisms of the plants and the animals and the order of when were they created in relationship to the creation of man. I think all of that answers it between chapters 1 and to. I hope that helps. I love that you're reading that. Dig, dig, dig. Never stop digging. I think that's a great question. I think that's a question that you, you might run in in your own life. Somebody would go, I never understood this. Right? And then share that with them. All right, next question. 
Will we know our loved ones in heaven? There was a lot more to this one. We kind of narrowed it down. Will we understand our loved ones in heaven? I want to tell you right here, we will 100%. I am 100% that you will not only recognize your loved ones, but you will recognize everyone and be recognized by everyone. Have you ever felt like no one cared about you and no one knew you and never, no one ever took an interest in you? You're going to love heaven because everybody's going to take an interest in you and everybody's going to know you. Uh, you've never been good at talking about yourself. You don't even have to. They'll know you. They'll really know you. I really, I'm 100% about that. But why am I 100% about that? All right. What does the Bible say about whether we will be able to recognize people in the afterlife? Will we be able to recognize people in the afterlife? That's kind of the crux of this question. What does the Bible say about that? Got some examples. King Saul recognized Samuel when the witch of Endor summoned Samuel from the realm of the dead. Is Samuel dead? Was he recognized? He was recognized. When David's infant son died, David declared, I will go to him and he, but he will not return to me. I will go to him, he says. David assumed that he would be able to go to his son, recognize his son in the afterlife. I'm going to go to him. I'm not going to go to a bunch of people and he's going to be there. I'm going to go right to him. And despite the fact that this child died as a baby and we have no idea what he will look like in the afterlife, David is going to know his son and go right to him. In Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, Lazarus and the rich man were all recognizable after death. So was Abraham. Abraham's in that story too. And for everybody that says that's a parable, I got news for you. Jesus doesn't say it's a parable. He always announces a parable. He always says the kingdom of God is like. No, he launches out into a story. And unlike any other parable, he names the people in it. These aren't just symbolic people. They are named individuals, Lazarus and Abraham. And they're all recognizable after death. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were instantly recognizable, recognized by people who had never seen them. This was, they had no Polaroid pictures then. They had, no, they had no LinkedIn space where you could go, have you ever run into somebody and you don't remember their name? So you go Google, you go find them on Facebook. And I know they're friends of someone and you go find them and go. And then you're like, Lauren, it's so good to see you. And you're like, thank you, good, goodness, Zuckerberg. You helped me know their name. Anybody? Am I the only one? I'm telling you, when James, John, and Peter saw these two men show up, they didn't go, oh my gosh, look up, look up uh, Old Testament LinkedIn real quick. Let's see who these people are. No, they knew instantly that that was Moses and that was Elijah. How did they know that? It's supernatural. Heaven is supernatural. In these examples, the Bible uh, does seem to indicate that, that, that we will be recognizable after death. I hope that gives you a lot of hope. Heaven is so much more than mansions and streets of gold. I would have you know that next. Heaven is the liberation and redemption of of all things. Everything the way it was supposed to be. It will be in heaven. 
Everything that's messed up in this world will be done away with. Your bad memory will be done away with in heaven. Alzheimer's. There are people that have long since forgotten who their loved ones. But when they cross over into heaven, they will be completely, 100% restored in every faculty. Everything that has been lost will be restored. Romans chapter 8, 20 through 22 tells us that. Next, the Bible declares that when we arrive in heaven, we will be like who? We'll be like Jesus. We will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. To see Jesus is to become a different person. But when this, in this moment, you're going to be changed completely to be like Jesus. Anybody think Jesus is going to forget somebody? Anybody think Jesus isn't going to know somebody? Just as our earthly bodies were of the first man, Adam, so will our resurrected bodies be like the last Adam, Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 tells us that. And, and 1 Corinthians 15, 49 and 53 says this. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. I would also, continuing, give you all I got. Many people recognize Jesus after his resurrection. Sure, uh, the, the Mary Magdalene outside of the garden temple didn't recognize him. She thought he was a gardener. It's a really funny story. She's come to see Jesus and didn't recognize him when, when she sees him. And then the, the people on the road to Emmaus, they, they didn't recognize uh, Jesus either. Why? We aren't actually told why. I think Jesus might have been doing something there. Jesus sometimes likes to, likes to play with us, I think. I know Jesus likes to play with me. So, but Jesus is recognizable after his resurrection, several places. In fact, there's one place that says 500 people saw him. They saw him and recognized him. This is after death. If Jesus was recognizable in his glorified body, we also will be recognizable in our glorified body bodies we will see our loved ones and even though they are changed changed for the better we will see them and know them and then of course the verse where, we're, where we really understand knowing in the afterlife in in this spiritual encounter and the spiritual crossover is found in first corinthians 13 it's the love chapter first corinthians 13 12 for now we see only reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face. Everyone said face. Prosopone, pros, prosopone. That's what that word is. Prosopone, face. Pros, two. Prosopone, face. How many faces are there in this? There's two. There's two. Some people will tell you that this is the Bible. This is, some people actually tell you it's the King James Version. That gets back to that other quarrelsome argument from earlier. I would tell you your Bible doesn't have a face. The face is the face of Jesus. When your face meets his face, what's going to happen? Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. When you are face to face with Christ, everything you know changes. Face to face with Jesus, fully known and fully known and fully know to the to the level that you are fully known by Jesus. Anybody think he doesn't fully know you? He fully knows you now. 
He fully knew what stinker you was when he died on the cross for you. He knew all about your shortcomings and still prayed, Father, forgive him. Oh, he knows you. But to the level you are fully known by Jesus, you will fully know at that same level. And I believe that applies to everyone. Why? Because this is the love chapter. And it's telling you, you're going to fully know everyone. And I would add to this, if you'll let me add one thing to Scripture here, you'll fully love everyone. I believe that checks out when you read 1 Corinthians 13. Heaven will not be starting over. That's the last thing I'll say about this. Heaven is not a reboot. It's not a reset. It's not a start over. It's not wipe the database and you're now a new robot person. Heaven is a full restoration. Full restoration of what? The garden. It's the full restoration of Adam and Eve standing before a holy God and there was nothing in between them. All of earth is going to be restored. You know where heaven comes? You know where heaven is? Read in Revelation. It says heaven came down and it sits on the earth. This is going to be heaven. That rock song wasn't wrong. Heaven isn't too far away. That's our altar song tonight. White? Who was that? White Stripe? Is it White Stripe? I don't know who that is. Gore is not gore. All right. Heaven will be a full restoration and it will restore everything. It will restore everything. I'm telling you, your hope, if you've really broken some things in your life, heaven is going to fix it. There's some things I've said to people, it's going to be fixed in heaven. It's going to be fixed. Isn't that beautiful? I love you, Jesus. Thank you. I got two more questions. I'm trying to hurry. Who was the young man in a linen garment in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 through 52? Why is he mentioned? So what's the setting? This is after uh, the, the, the table. This is after the, 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 the Last Supper. They go to the prayer garden. They go to the garden. And while Jesus is being arrested, uh, they're all scattering. And out of nowhere, there's a guy not named. And he's wearing a linen garment. And one of the soldiers grabs the garment and the, the young man runs away naked. It's, it's in your Bible. It's like this happens. So what's that about? I would, I would answer. Here it is. We do not know for sure. We don't know for sure at all. So take that. Take everything what I'm saying with that in, in mind. No other gospel tells about this young man. Only the gospel of Mark. So I would answer this. It, it could be a very young Mark. A very young Mark. This could be John Mark. It's a young lad. In fact, maybe just imagine a little kid and he's really taken with Jesus. And uh, he's following him late at night. And he is an eyewitness of this account. It's really interesting to think about. I like to think about it. While unprovable, it is believed by some that the house where the Last Supper took place was owned by Mark's family. We know that Mark had strong heritage. It's referenced by Paul. It talks about Mark's family. Owned by Mark's family. And as a young child, it fits in the narrative. It fits in chronologically, time-wise, that a young Mark could have witnessed the Last Supper. 
And he could have witnessed this scene in the garden. What an amazing thing. That would mean that Mark, Mark does witness some of the gospel here. I think that's really neat to me. Uh, it is not scripturally unusual to put yourself in the story, but leave yourself unnamed. Somebody notably does that name, John the Beloved, right? John wrote about in his gospel over and over again. Only in his gospel does this occur. The disciple that Christ loved. The disciple that Christ loved leaned against his chest and said, hey, can you tell me? And so we don't know that that's John, but we believe it's John speaking of himself. Why? It is assumed that John speaking of himself without naming himself because to name yourself shifts the story towards someone else. And they wanted the story to be about Jesus. This could be the case with the young Mark's inclusion in the gospel. Anyway, it's really neat. Last question. Thank you for that question. And it's a kid question. This one wasn't texted into me. It was asked of me in my car. I'll leave it anonymous. They asked, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? I think we all know who that is. That asked that. Well, let's answer that. Do you think God has a pen? Abby, do you think God has a pen? And he's like, in the beginning. Why do people lick their tongue with a pen? I never understood that. Licks the pen. Why? Does God have a pen? There is a place in Scripture where God writes with his finger. It's on, it's on tablets of stone. There's another place. He writes on the walls of your heart. Oh, God used people, actually, to write down his prophetic word. That's very clear in Scripture. So people write down the word of God. So you can say that people wrote the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about from the prophet's own interpretation of things. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So is it, we believe, with the Word of God. That somebody is not just writing out their own interpretation of things, their own understanding of how things, but, but God, just like He uses humans prophets to send his word he has used his word by the holy spirit moving in people and that they would write so the words of of genesis we believe they're written by moses but i would tell you that moses isn't like this is how i think it went no the word he, he met god on that mountain and god spoke to him the creation account god spoke to him all the law we believe that from God's interpretation, not from man's interpretation, is Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by the hand of Moses. It did not originate with man, but with God. God's Spirit moved on men to have His Word. Last, I would tell you this, 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. It says some scripture. Somebody ought to know this verse and correct me. Some, a little bit of scripture. The really inspirational ones that go on t-shirts. No, that scripture is 
2 Timothy 3.16. Somebody tell me, what's the first word? All Scripture is God-breathed. Where's another place in the Bible where God breathes? In Genesis, He creates man by breathing into him. God has never stopped breathing. He is the living God. He breathes into Adam. He becomes a living soul. He breathes his word. His word is breathed. And you know what the spirit means? You know what the word spirit is? It's the word pneuma. It means breath. God's spirit is his breath. When you're filled with the spirit, that same God who breathed into man and he became a living soul, he breathes into you and you're born again. You become the life-giving spirit, as Paul says. That life-giving spirit's now within you. Because the breath of God is in you. And that breath of God is your word of God. That's why Jesus says, my words are pneuma. My words are spirit. And they are life. It is living breath of God. And when you will read it, when you will receive it, it will breathe life into you. Praise God. Praise God. God uses people like you and me. And that's very exciting. God wants to use you. God used shepherds. He used kings. He used farmers. He used fishermen. He used doctors and servants to give his word out. And he wants to use you today to give his word out. How do you know the word is true? That's usually the follow-up. And I'll answer that in one simple sentence. Here it is. You try it. How do you know it's true? You taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm telling you, when I read the word of God, I'm a better father and I'm a better husband. I'm a better person. I'm better in every way. When I read about Jesus, I love him more. When I read about Jesus, I want to surrender more. When I read about him, I want to pray more. We've surrendered word to you today. Does anybody feel like praying today? Let's reach out to the Lord in this place. These altars are open right now. I thank everyone for reaching out to us. For more information about redemption, look us up online at redemption-church.com. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or even our anonymous question text line at 214-856-0550. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.